Promise No Promises, Feminism in the Caribbean. Episode 1, Thinking with Places and Objects. The podcast Promise No Promises opens a new chapter called Feminism in the Caribbean. This series of four new episodes arises from personal conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and art practitioners from the Caribbean region. The collaboration is part of the public program of the past exhibition, one month after being known in that island, at the Kulturstiftung Basel H. Geiger with the Caribbean Art Initiative. The changeful history of the colonization of the Caribbean has left deep scars that are still present today. This is best known by artists and cultural practitioners who work in their own way on an identity of its own for the Antilles. The term Caribbean here is used primarily in a geographical sense to help overcoming local antagonisms between different political systems, languages and cultures while allowing artists of all origins to exchange ideas and thus work together on a Caribbean identity. The series of podcasts aims to engage with a plurality of voices from different backgrounds to think with them on the diversity implicit in the notion of identity. Thinking with Places and Objects is the title of the first episode in this new series, which follows a conversation with artist Beatriz Santiago Munoz. Her projects involve long periods of contact, observation and documentation of the places she chose to work with. Beatriz is aware of the camera as an experiential device, which interacts with the world even when it's turned off. The camera itself is an object with social implications that creates and participates in ritual forms. It is also an aesthetic instrument that expands the perception of the human eye and psyche. Thanks to it we can see the world differently than we usually do. However, the camera is not a neutral technological device, but a carrier and producer of ideology. Various types of gaze converge in it. The male gaze, the white gaze, the military gaze, the human gaze. This is why Beatriz Santiago Munoz's practice means thinking with places, with their differences and particularities in order not to reproduce the same human and historical logic that usually makes us perceive environments without realizing it. With respect to an area of Puerto Rico, the place where Beatriz lives and frequently works, she talks about her efforts to see the forest and not the military ruins on top of which that forest exists. Puerto Rico is an island where many places coexist at the same time. Its post-military condition is due to the relatively recent U.S. occupation as part of a much larger colonial heritage that began with Europe centuries ago and continues until today. For example, through the notion of the exotic, a mindset supported by the tourism industry constantly reproducing Western colonial imaginaries. The conversation with Beatriz began by moving together on the notion of place. As an abstract tool for thinking, place does not usually contain the place it tries to refer to. Place as a pure concept is a non-living space. Thinking with places, in the plural, is a way of accounting for the diversity of environments. It is also a way of overcoming the misleading binary division between the local and the universal. Like Beatrice herself commented during our meeting, There is no place that is more local or particular than another. Even the white cube and its fiction of neutrality is an enormously connoted place because of the diverse spaces it occupies. Similarly, ontology has produced an autonomous and hermetic image of objects. However, anything becomes always different in another context and by changing places. The material dimension of thinking not only refers to using a body to think, but to practice the thinking through objects. They are invisible agents within the history of thought and at the same time systems of interactions in constant transformation. The ability to understand objects differently is a constant aspect of Haitian life, as Beatrice says. A closet easily becomes a staircase. 
the utility of the object is to be found in its temporary and not in its initial function. During her stay in Haiti, Beatriz Santiago Munoz witnessed the enormous awareness the inhabitants have about the production and circulation of images. Haitians in the street have it very clear that I have something to win and they have something to lose. In Haiti, the camera becomes a white object that comes from an external reality. It is a relational device that demonstrated who is taking benefits from the relationship, mediated by the image. Moreover, as Beatriz mentions, the images of disaster are part of a perverse logic. They are an alibi for later forms of domination through post-disaster care and support. The enormous productions of images of our present makes us think that everything has been represented, that everything is visible. This is not true. What has been overrepresented is a partial way of understanding reality, not realities themselves. Therefore, Beatriz proposes the possibility of creating images without spectators, or even a cinema without an audience. Working from the margins of representation produces a marginal territory that questions the natural assumption of a center. The conversation with Beatriz Santiago Munoz took place at the end of November 2020. She was in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and I was in Berlin. It was a meeting mediated by technology and also connoted by it. The weak internet connection on my computer made us turn off our cameras so that we could hear each other much better. I could say that it was an encounter without images, but I would be lying. Language and stories are powerful producers of images. They are human technology. Language is capable of transforming what is thinkable, what is imaginable. Maybe that is one reason our conversation ended up going back to the year 2114 with the radio project We Come From The Future and their collective proposal to imagine a society after patriarchy. For the time being, language remains one of the most powerful technologies of the future. I think that I, like everybody else, is already kind of ordered in this way of seeing. I think of myself as already ordered by this way of looking. Like, for example, you're talking about the idea of landscape. I don't think that it's that I don't have it or that I think differently, but rather that I'm aware of it and I want to break with that form of thinking and so I'm constantly looking at other forms of seeing so that I may undo it. I use then the ways of being or seeing that the place itself suggests rather than necessarily finding myself from within myself somehow another way of seeing which I think is almost impossible I use sometimes chance. I guess I learned from a friend the idea of interviewing a plant, an ethnobotanist. So what would that mean? What are you paying attention to? How are you trying to think with? And then this translates in really simple, material, formal mechanisms.
when I was making a series of films in a place that used to be a U.S. Navy base and that was becoming a forest, a different kind of forest with all sorts of small events happening there. I was frustrated with my own inability to see anything other than the base's print, right? Its footprint, its order. It was so hard to look through the camera and see anything other than that. But eventually I noticed that the people from around the base were beginning to come into the base by breaking the fences and returning to it in order to fish, in order to collect cotton or fruits, in order to sometimes to hunt as well. I began paying attention to the ways in which they were able to, with their bodies and action, changed the way that we were all thinking about the place. So now we were no longer standing in a, a dock for gigantic submarines, but instead the scale turned into the scale of a body because they were shore fishing. This use and the way the body and materials and the length of the fishing line, all of that suggested that there was a way of thinking with the place, a different kind of use that needed to be folded, made into a different scale, treated in a less monumental way. And I started then making these objects, mirrored objects, that I could film through and that would very literally bend and fold the image of the landscape so that it did not create these kind of strong diagonals or looking into infinity. They're just really basic ways in which a rational lens reproduces something that we're seeing that basically blinds us to other ways of seeing the place. So thinking through other people's actions or hearing, you know, once I turned off the camera and used my recorder turning on the volume, like the sensitivity of the microphone to a really high level, you could hear the amount of events and actions that are more like insect level. And so you feel time going by differently. You start noticing that there is actually a lot of movement uh, going on and it's just that your own way of seeing in order for us to maintain this fiction of the eye it necessarily eliminates a lot I think it all has to do with the idea of having a stable eye right having a stable subject there's um, all sorts of mechanisms that our brain sort of takes on without us really being aware of what's going on so I use like chance and formal playing and the idea of irrational lenses or something that may look distorted, but in fact is only distorted because we are not at the center of the image in order to help me think in a different way. Initially, like I knew that having a camera with me allowed me to do a lot of things that I otherwise couldn't. I understand more now what it does, but I think initially I was drawn to the same aspects, which is that when you have a camera in your hands and you start interacting with someone, it's not just you, but in a way the camera is having your eye externalized or like taking it out of your body and putting it in your hand. You're saying to the person in a kind of exaggerated way, I am paying attention. I am looking. You're calling attention to the aspect of looking and listening in a way that is like external to your body and that calls upon a whole history of looking and paying attention. And this changes the relation between the person you're with, or your own way of seeing where you are and what is around you. It transforms something. It's a hypersensorial state. 
sometimes you are paying attention to to the mechanism and to the machine itself to the framing or how more light or less light might look but all of these are also ways that we kind of automate in daily life and how we you know turn our heads and look a certain way or look at an image sideways or and it's just a way of putting it outside of your own body and having it you know it's still in relation to you but you and the other can pay attention as well i actually love what can happen with that i think that there is an idea that the camera creates discomfort and it does of course in many moments if i take out a recorder or a camera and sit down with my father you know i can have a different kind of conversation than i can have with him alone and there is also a possibility of invention together and that's something that i'm really interested in it's almost like the dispositivo the mechanism of psychoanalysis you know let's just change for a second how we're relating to each other you lie down there there's just a few formal elements that change but a lot of things become possible when those few formal elements of attention change i'm interested in what happens there in that moment that this machine is added i think that once you start thinking about what a camera is what a camera obscura used to be oh you can be inside the room that is making the image oh the entire world is outside and the light is coming in and you can stand in different places in relation to that image oh i'm t now i'm making a fixed impression of that image like that's a second moment to make a fixed impression first is just being in the darkness and looking at seeing you know really seeing seeing and then there's fixing that moment and taking it with you in order to look at it at a different time and to show to others that weren't there and that's another thing <laughs> It was it actually intended to be a film to learn for myself how I could make a film, how I could make a film in Port-au-Prince. In part, I was really aware of the ways in which images of misery or images that are interpreted as disorder can be distorted once those images go outside of the context in which they were made. And because I wanted to make a film in which that image was did not overwhelm the people that I wanted to listen to I shot mostly at night but that's like I guess a strange example because it was a moment when I was really aware that the images that I was shooting in Port-au-Prince were going to leave Port-au-Prince and I was more paying attention to the possibilities of distortion that decontextualizing those images would create. And so in a way I thought I will keep the image of the world in darkness. And the focus is on Daphne who is singing and, you know, Evan Spear who is telling a story. But to be honest now, I think that uh, that was a mistake. Or at least I really want to think of the people that I am making the work with as the primary audience of the work as well, both the subjects and the interlocutors. Though I was really happy to think about the night with them and what the night could do uh, as a moment in which other things are possible, as a different way of thinking than during the day. As you can feel it in the city. You can feel it transforming. No, it's a, of course, hot it's in the tropics and so a lot of the life the social life outdoors the moment of relaxing happens after the sun goes down so the quickness with which people move during the day it slows down just a little bit the ways in which the sounds sort of wake up the sounds of what's happening in the trees or the wind or other things are moving rather than cars and work 
I, I appreciate that it created a moment to pay attention to all of that. But I also think that when I was so concerned about the circulation of the image outside of Port-au-Prince that I forgot the primary audience of the work. Haitians are just really sharp about the way that images are used. I don't think that it necessarily was only born of the period after the earthquake, but after the earthquake, definitely the way in which all those cameras descended in the country in order to document catastrophe, it's something that is repeated, you know, after every catastrophe, right? This is an image that circulates, that sells, but also the image of catastrophe, as I learned after the hurricane here as well, is the antecedent, is the thing that needs to happen before a new series of exploitation. You need to present an image of disorder, of helplessness, of things not in their place, of senselessness, in order to create an acceptance for a different power to come in and organize and give sense and give meaning. And so the cameras that came into Haiti and created those images, people really quickly picked up on what they were doing, how those images worked. So right now, if you are in Port-au-Prince and you pull out a camera in the middle of the street, and even if you're pointing the camera up at a building, people will let you know that what you are doing is not socially acceptable. Taking an image of, so, of a person on the street without you know, very explicitly asking their permission and explaining what is it for is also completely out of the question. So Haitians have learned so much about the way that images are used that they are perhaps the most knowledgeable, like socially, you know, this knowledge is like expanded throughout the population. And so I learned a lot as well through paying attention to that resistance to becoming an image. But then I also think that creating images, having images of oneself is important. And so then what this kind of conundrum or problem requires is a rethinking of what the images that come from a camera are, if they must have an audience, or if you can make an image without an audience, or if you can use what the camera can give you in terms of that exaggerated attention or that other way of listening to each other or looking at each other, if you can use that aspect without necessarily producing an image for somebody else to see. I guess I'm thinking about cinema as everything that happens around the intention of filming with a camera. Uh, from the moment that you start thinking about how you're going to hold it and move to the moment that you're approaching someone or approaching a place or an idea. And all of that together is like the larger conceptual, sensorial, social machine that we call cinema. And because in the Caribbean in particular, the history of photography and cinema is the history really of people in the Caribbean being subjects, being images, rather than being the makers of images. For me, it becomes really important and pressing to sort of diagram out what cinema is and to look at all the aspects of it, even before the image exists, as a place to kind of open up, play with, and do different things. So everything from making a, a film that may not have an audience outside of the people that are in it, to thinking about, in the case of that famous Maya Deren's project that then later on became the book, The Divine Horseman, arriving with an idea of filmmaking, shooting, but having letting that process become a transformative process through which, in her case, she decided that it was not possible to create an image of the 
voodoo ritual that did not in some way transgress it or do some formal violence to it. And so even all the shooting that did not become a film is a part of filmmaking. So maybe if we start considering all those ethical questions as well, and all the relationships that change, if we consider all of that also part of cinema, we may be able to generate different kinds of filmmaking, different kinds of art making that don't rely on what we think of as contemporary art, on the ideas that we think of as contemporary art. I guess this sounds vague, but what I'm thinking is that there are certain ideas that are fixed in contemporary art, like there is an artist and there is an audience, there is a spectator. Original work is more important than, say, a translation. The process of creating meaning and interpretation in the spectator is the place where the work is made. All these assumptions that are part of contemporary art, maybe if we start opening up the process of filmmaking and paying attention to all the different moments, the ones that come before the image as well, and even the ones that end up in no image, we start recognizing where creative work is happening that is not necessarily the ones that we assume of art. For me, it's one of the most difficult questions, this idea of the white cube as a place. It's something that I struggle with a lot, and I don't think that I have found really good answers or good ways to think about all the work, right? Each part of the work is embedded, like one at first is embedded in a kind of sociality and in what is possible with the group of people that I meet or that I work with, what is possible in a place. There's all those relationships there. Then it goes into a kind of space of exhibition, and then you consider this other place, right, and all its systems. A museum is a bank as well. And then after that, it goes to live on like a server someplace, and it's streamed, and that is also part of a different kind of place. All of those moments are part of it. But the one that I find most difficult or most contradictory is that moment in the exhibition space. The reason is because it is my personal economy. It's the way that I am able to make money or I'm kind of necessarily inhabit that space part of the time. Even as I try to open up other ways of circulating the work or thinking about it, it's kind of a structure that is really hard to step around. There are some times in which I've tried to think about it really consciously, for example, to even make work specifically thinking about this moment of exhibition, which is actually rare for me. I was invited to participate in the Whitney Biennial, which is a biennial of American artists. Now, they don't choose according to citizenship, but more about sort of what is relevant to the United States and, and Puerto Rico is a colony. And so I was invited and expressed to the curators this idea that I did not want to be included as a kind of way of bringing in representations of otherness. And so that I did not want the work to be presented to do this work for the institution, and that instead I was going to make a work specifically for the institution. That work ended up being focusing on Jan Sussler, who is an American lawyer, who was the lawyer for all of the political prisoners, the Puerto Rican political prisoners. I made a film that was specifically about a person who is an American anti-colonialist, to say you don't have to look for otherness. This is not a matter of identity. It's, you don't need to be an other in order to be an anti-colonialist. You don't need to have this experience. There are models for thinking and for acting that come from American history. The really funny thing was that on the day of that screening, the audience was mostly Puerto Rican. 
what I ended up doing in terms of representation for the institution was to draw my community to it, right? That is the way that I was instrumentalized. In a way, I don't think the curators were in agreement with this, but it was, it's almost unavoidable that the institution will do that. That is what institutional processes will do. Oh, we have a Puerto Rican artist. Who are we drawing with this? And so actually it turned out that I ended up making a film for the wrong people who were not going to be the audience for the film. So it's a really vexing thing because you are a part of the machine as well. It's not just that you have to think about the white cube as a physical space, but that your role as an included other becomes part of all these other mechanisms. I guess what I thought is like, aha, uh -huh, I have to think first about how I am being used by the institution. What it's larger than the context that I was thinking about. At that point, where maybe like something similar uh, happened in another American institution, I was having a show at the New Museum and I sat down with the person who was going to write the press release, for example, and she wanted to understand what the work was about and how it should be described. I talked to her for a long time and then I read the first draft. She talked about the work having to do with marginalized women. And I was like, read that word and I thought, what? <laughs> this is, of course, the language of the institution coming back then to describe and fix the work where the work can never be a center. When I think and talk about place, my point is really that every place, every place and every arrangement, every assemblage of idea, place, thing, how something feels, produces a way of being in the world, not just the Caribbean. It's interesting, sometimes I am speaking to someone and they say, your work is very local or it's very specific. It's no more specific than anybody doing abstract paintings in New York. It's not described as such. I mean, it's only specifically not part of this dominant way of looking at the world that is thought of as kind of transparent and universal. So I understand the way that it's used as like, this is specific and local and something coming out of art school in Berlin, part of that set of ideas is not, is somehow, you know, just simply contemporary art or part of the world that, you know, you don't need to remark on it. But then it gets complicated because that point is somehow not understood. So it's something that I have to clarify a lot when depending on like the language that people use to describe my attention to place. But I do pay attention, I mean, as we were talking about, to thinking with materials, objects, like sensorial, it's just thinking with the senses because I am from a part of the world whose history or whose ways of being in the world has been erased, suppressed, etc. And so producing new materials with which to think from this place is really important. But I would say not as a kind of rediscovering of something past, but rather as like a kind of concentrated motor of producing constantly new ways of thinking. When you start talking about the Caribbean as a whole, or just using the word, right, the Caribbean, I suppose there's, you know, there's lots that could be said about uh, this idea of thinking the Caribbean as a whole. One interesting thing that I find about it is that it's mostly a dream. It's an idea because it's such a fractured, it's a geography that is so fractured through colonialism that there has always, like for the past 100 and something years, been a kind of oppositional undercurrent against that fracturing. So to think again about possible connections, I mean, it's so, so hard. You can't imagine to be next to Cuba, Haiti, Trinidad, and to have to spend 16 hours to get there and $1,200. 
as if you were going to the other part of the world. So there's real physical and economic forces creating that fracturing for many hundreds of years now. The possibility of thinking in a more connected way and learning from each other and thinking with each other, even while recognizing those translations that must happen and the kind of holes that open up, like when you, I go to Haiti and understand that it's not like, here we are, all Caribbean. No, there was a revolution there that made a complete break with what I have been ordered within. But thinking of... Haiti as part of something that with Puerto Rico rather than from a completely different history or part of the world will hopefully change the way we think here. This idea, like the Panantillian Confederation, all these ideas have always been a kind of political and sometimes aesthetic undercurrents as a kind of wish. They can be beautiful. They shouldn't be thought of as some kind of utopia because definitely that's not going to get us to a good place either. But I think that the kind of throwing out this idea, or just the possibility of thinking together, is interesting against the past few hundred years. It's exactly that, just like you were describing. I guess what I find it happens, and that is pretty generalized through the Caribbean. Since global production systems and exports create through the kind of massive production, create all this excess, and that excess is dumped in many places. But Haiti is one of those places where it is just massively dumped and it transforms the economy. So all people's clothes go end up somehow there and it destroys the local tailor seamstress economy. And like that with everything. But then also, as you say, with the washer, everything gets transformed in what is actually needed, whether it's broken apart, like plastic bags used as thread and then threaded together to make a rug or a basket. Or I was there with a few friends participating in an exhibition. Wow, it's almost a year ago. And my friend Diego was looking for a material that was actually treated as waste. He was like, okay, let's see if I can find something that nobody wants and I'll use that material to make something. And finally, he found these plastic strips that are used to hold other materials together and that when they are of a certain size, did not have a use yet. But it was very, very hard to find trash, to find anything that was not used. Also, just the basic configuration of like an apartment or a house as something with like a foyer or a bedroom where one person would sleep and, or, and they would have a bathroom off to the side. Even the ways in which spaces are configured need to be reconfigured for other kinds of family arrangements or for other kinds of uses. And there's a different sense of time and how long things need to be kept together for. Sometimes you look at something and it looks like it is shabbily made, but really it only needs to hold together for a smaller amount of time. I have a brother now as well, but when I was growing up, it was me and my sister and my mother. And she had us when she was 19 years old. And then we mostly lived with two different great-grandmothers. And so, as you can imagine, my great-grandmother was also, of course, like, you don't, leaves are not trash. You don't need to rastrillar. You don't need to pick up the leaves. The plants are planted in the cans left over from the crackers. 
I remember pots and pans fixed back together with that kind of like electrical tape and things like this. So, you know, of that generation that nothing is wasted. And those were the women that raised me. I think because I moved a lot as well from house to house, not necessarily having a room of my own until much later. And then once I was in university, I was also very much like moving every year. I managed to not gather too many things, even I mean, I'm 48 years old now, and maybe this year was the first that I actually bought a large piece of furniture. Everything has always been something that somebody gives me or that I adapt its use. At some point, so this idea got into my head that I should always be ready to move at a moment's notice and that it was not a good thing to be too attached to things though I, I have some things that I am really attached to like things that I find when I'm walking I have the bones that belonged to a beached whale I have these objects around the house that I have found taking long walks and that I don't think that I would be able to give them up <laughs> sometimes I these things I give to people who I really like as gifts I'm just thinking about the things that I do carry from place to place. I mean, books is one. I inherited, besides the books of mine, I have all these books from my grandfather that died a few years back. And those I've mostly kept, even though I can't imagine reading them. They're not the kinds of books that I'm so interested in, but they're his. And then at some point, a cousin of mine who had been carrying around this urn with an Alsacian great aunt in it. Yes, she had to move and she just couldn't bear, she couldn't take it with her. And so I ended up being like the holder of this Alsacian aunt. Yeah, I've had her for 20 years. And so I don't even have a personal connection with the Alsacian aunt, but I'm always moving around the Alsacian aunt in the house. I'll put her here, I'll put her <laughs> I can't say that my house is empty, it's full of little things, costumes. The thing, whenever you make a film and I just made a really, a long one with lots of objects made for it, then they become part of your world. Now I'm living with the masks surrounding me and some lamps that I bought for one scene and living in a film set. So if you're thinking about what it would take to really transform the world that we live in and like the presence of the military, for example, cannot fight it on material terms because that would mean a war. That would mean an accumulation of the same kind of materials. That would mean going into the same. I also don't think that the symbolic is just a magical space. Put it another way, I think that political speech and all sorts of speech is also magical symbolic. It is just a certain use of the symbolic of all the statecraft and hierarchies. You know, they're all formal elements really that create an illusion of power. And so thinking this area, this symbolic, is the place where instead of having to fight against the construction of a giant wall by taking it apart brick by brick first you debate it or you argue against it or you transform it first on a, a symbolic level and there just with the movement of a body or the presence of a body or a way of speaking or imagining you can make that transformation even spells need work you know, like if you want somebody to fall in love with you, you can't, it's not going to be an easy spell. You have to go and get some piece of something they touched or get some part of their hair. It basically spells require some real labor and that those moments of labor also produce something. They bring you into proximity with a person. They make you think about the person. They make you think about what that person might feel. And so all these mechanics, um, actions and movements, materials involved with the spell, are actually the work. 
maybe you cannot make somebody fall in love with you. You cannot destroy the military industrial complex with a dance, maybe. But if you put your energy and your intention towards creating the dance and thinking about it through this other way of thinking, through the body, then you may be able to change what we all think about. In a way, talking around the work is just as interesting as talking about the work itself. But Venimos desde el futuro. It was a kind of response to a moment a few years back in Puerto Rico where there was a lot of activism around feminicides or femicides, you say in English, feminicidios. And so there was some organizing among women to respond to. I really wanted to do something, but I did not want to respond to the feminicidios in the ways in which you are forced to say, please don't kill me. So I started trying to think, how do we get way, get so beyond this? How can we think from after the patriarchy? It very quickly became a very collaborative project, almost chaotically so. So it was four days of transmission. We've set up a live radio station at Beta Local because it was impossible for me to produce four days of programming. Very quickly, it was like every day, four people organized the transmission for different people. So each group of four people had one day. And then among those four people, they divided even more. So for example, I asked 10 people to produce programs that could either be live, they could come into the station, or they could send us a file. If you can imagine this kind of tree structure, we had something like 60 different makers, most of the women, but not all. Some people did really amazing, like a speech given in an auditorium in this imagined sort of women's dictatorship a hundred years in the future. The conceit was it's a hundred years in the future after the end of patriarchy. So to really imagine for everybody to speak to us from this other place and to describe their world. It was really very almost chaotically varied in scope. Like I say a dictatorship, like the dictator giving a speech in the auditorium and then other times like really very beautiful descriptions of giving birth within this other society. And then some people came to do their shows live. I remember a friend, Macha Colón, she's a performer. Hers was the last piece and it became a four hour improvisation. And by that point, you know, she had an audience. In her improvisation, she was transforming from her dolphin form into her human form through consuming this really cheap sangria. As she became more drunk, she became more human and she was able to speak with us. But at the beginning, she was like screeching, describing her life with dolphins over the past years. It was really beautiful. <laughs> It was also about like, can we get out from under critique? It's just so much time is spent trying to describe current systems that there's almost no time left to imagine the other. So if we just concentrate on that for a while, maybe that alone and making those really almost palpable, almost that you can see them will be make it so much clearer how limited the systems that we have right now are. 
One of the triumphs of the sort of monoculture where art is defined the same place everywhere and is that it presents itself just by virtue of the constant repetition of the form as the only option. It becomes naturalized in everything, language, ways of thinking. It's really pressing important to be able to imagine and describe other possibilities. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Institut du Souche, a joint venture with Krajina Kulczyk and ArtStations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. The chapter Feminism in the Caribbean is a special collaboration with the Caribbean Art Initiative as part of the public program of the past exhibition One Month After Being Known in That Island, supported by the Kulturstiftung Basel H. Geiger. The Caribbean Art Initiative is committed to contemporary art that is related to the Caribbean and supporting the creative and cultural exchange between the Caribbean region and the rest of the world. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Ziza. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research team, Alice Wilke and Marion Ritzmann. Technical support, Esther Hunziger, Stephen Schoch, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Press and communication, Anna Franke. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch. That's institut-kunst.ch. Or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Institut Dussouche, ArtStations Foundation CH and Kulturstiftung Basel H. Geiger, Caribbean Art Initiative, Basel 2020.